coming up on Philosophy Talk. What is space? What is time? What is space-time? Aren't space and time just aspects of space-time? Time might be another physical dimension. The past might be a canyon that they can climb into, and the future, the mountain they can climb up, but to us, it's not, okay? Einstein said, People like us who believe in physics know the distinction between past, present, and future is only a stubbornly persistent illusion. He also said, the only reason for time is so that everything doesn't happen at once. Memory is a strange thing. It doesn't work like I thought it did. We are so bound by time, by its order. The space-time continuum. Our guest is Tim Maudlin, author of Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. So many social engagements, so little time. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Josh Lampy. And I'm Ray Briggs. Thanks for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, at philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Are space and time two separate entities, or are they intertwined dimensions of a single thing, the space-time continuum? And who cares what difference does it make if they're two things or one messy thing? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where Ken and I teach philosophy. Today, it's the space-time continuum, another episode in our series, A Philosophical Guide to the Cosmos. Okay, I get space. I've lived in it all my life, and time, too. Space-time? What's that? Well, I don't get it so much. Well, let's start with the easy stuff, John. Then. All right, here's the easy stuff. There's space. It has three dimensions, east-west, north-south, and lower-higher. Time, that's before and after. I get them. Common sense, that is me, sees space and time as independent of each other and you know, not merged together. Common sense also sees space and time as absolute things. Yeah, if by that you mean no matter where in the youth you measure from, surely your birth in Sandusky, Ohio, occurred 11 years after 800 miles east and 500 feet below my birth in Lincoln, Nebraska. And Newton, it's not just common sense. John Newton saw it pretty much the same way. He saw space as this big freestanding container that was separate and distinct from the, the material universe it contained. Like a coffee cup and the coffee it contains. Yeah, right. And time, then, con is also a container. It contains the entire spatial manifold, which moves uh, through time as a single unit with all of its places forever intact. So you got the coffee in the cup, the cup is sliding down a timeline, the evolution of the universe is the state of the coffee changing as the cup and its contents move along the timeline. Perfect. Who needs anything better than that? Yeah, but Newton's contemporary and rival Leibniz was the first to reject. This is a lovely picture, but <laughs> Leibniz said it's incoherent. I mean, he thought it violated something he called the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason is the idea that for everything that exists, there must be a sufficient reason that explains why it is as it is and 
not some other way. All right, to get into Leibniz thinking a little bit, just imagine the material universe shifted one light year to the right in absolute space. Like moving the furniture in your living room to the right while keeping the arrangement intact. But the problem, he said, is that since you can't directly observe absolute space, you've got no fixed frame of reference like the walls and the floors to measure this movement against. So how could you tell if you were in the shifted universe or the unshifted one? Spoken exactly like Leibniz. He claimed that there would be no discernible distinction between one position in absolute space and another. And it's not just that we can't figure out, because of our limits, where in absolute space we ha the universe happens to be. He argued, I won't re try to repeat the argument here, but he argued that the very idea of absolute space turns out to be basically an empty idea, a, a null, empty idea. All right, all right. I give up on absolute space and time. I'll put those aside. Does that get us space-time? No, not on its own, not on its own. Uh, relativity denies absolute space, but that doesn't get us space-time. We, we, we need to talk about the speed of light and its role as the measuring stick of something like the, the ge geometry of the universe, the geometry of space-time as measured by light. Well, why light rather than sound well, or, or some really fast well, football player? Yes, I'm not completely <laughs> sure, but it's something like, well, it's one thing. Light's the fastest thing in the universe, but more importantly, though, it travels at the same velocity relative to all observers. It's kind of like a rigid measuring rod that we can use to measure time and space. Well, but isn't all apparent motion relative in that way? I mean, suppose I'm standing still and you're running downfield at 20 miles per hour. Oh, I wish. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, you know, being not knowing my own strength, I throw the football at 60 miles per hour. You can't catch up. You, you wish you could throw the ball that fast. Well, at any rate, the ball's moving uh, from me at 60 miles per hour, but, but if you're running at 20 miles per hour, it's only moving away from you at 40 miles per hour. Well, but light is different. Light, you cast a beam of light downfield, you know, when I'm coming past the uh, line of scrimmage, and even if you're standing still and I'm running my tail off, we'll each see it moving away at the speed of light. So does this get us to space-time? Well, let's think about that a little bit. Imagine you're standing at the center of a speeding train car, and I'm standing on a platform watching you go by, and just at the moment we pass each other, a flash of light, that pass, is emitted from the center of the car. Okay, I think I get that. So to you, the front and back of the car, they're located at fixed distances, equidistance from the source of the light. You're going to judge that the light reaches the two ends simultaneously, right? Of course. But what do you see? Well, I see the rear of the train moving toward the flashpoint. I see the front of the train moving away from it. You get me yet? Yeah, okay, this is kind of weird. Uh, weird properties of light. When you Then if you use it as a measuring stick, everything gets weird. Yeah, guess, huh? exactly, right. Since the speed of light, our, our measuring, measuring stick is the same in all directions for all observers, to me, the light headed for the back of the train covers less distance than the light headed for the fronts. So my measuring stick tells me that the flashes strike at the same time. Yours tells you that they strike at different times. Exactly. You said we also disagree about distances traveled. So I guess we disagree about the length of the car. You're kidding it, John. Yeah, well, so who's right, me or you? Well, we're both right, relative to our own frames of reference. Okay, so simultaneity is relative to frames of reference. Length is relative. Is anything not relative? Well, that's where the concept of space-time comes in. That's what we get instead of absolute space and absolute time. We get space-time. 
So I've been worrying about the relativity of ethics all this time, and I should just worry about the relativity of everything. So this is mind-boggling stuff. Yeah. And to boggle your mind even oh. more, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to look at the paradoxes of time travel within the space-time continuum, especially the way they're represented on the big and small screens. She files this report. In the movie Back to the Future, Marty travels back to 1955 and sings Johnny Be Good at a high school dance. All right, guys, uh, listen, this is the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Chuck Berry ends up hearing Marty play the song and records it himself in 1958. It becomes a huge hit. The idea is, when someone like Marty goes back in time and causes an event, they were predestined to do it. So history hasn't changed. It's called the predestination paradox. Another time travel paradox is the butterfly effect. As shown in the movie, The Butterfly Effect. Today I get to meet my father. A guy travels back in time to fix past wrongs, but keeps messing things up along the way. In one scene, the time traveler goes back to his childhood and visits his dad in a mental institution. It turns out his dad was a time traveler too, and wants his son to stop messing with history. There is no right. You can't change who people are without destroying who they were. Who says you can't make things better? You can't play God, son. It must end with me. Just by being here, you may be killing your mother. The theory is, the tiniest change to our past can have the gravest effects on our present. The name comes from a short story about a man who travels back to prehistoric times and accidentally steps on a butterfly, causing disastrous changes in his own future time. And then there's the bootstrap paradox. The idea that if you send something or someone back in time, the person or object is trapped in an infinite cause and effect loop. They have no point of origin. The show Doctor Who gives a good example of this, with the help of Ludwig von Beethoven. Doctor Who creates a fictional scenario where a man is so obsessed with Beethoven's music, he travels back in time to meet his hero. So, off he goes to 18th century Germany. But he can't find Beethoven anywhere. Beethoven's parents have never heard of him. His friends don't know who he is. Ludwig van Beethoven doesn't exist. Yet. The time traveler panics. He can't bear the thought of a world without the music of Beethoven. Luckily, he brought all of his Beethoven sheet music for Ludwig to sign. So he copies out all the concertos and the symphonies, and he gets them published. He becomes Beethoven. And history continues with barely a feather ruffled. So who created Beethoven's symphonies in the first place? Suddenly, Ludwig has no time of origin. Other paradoxes include the grandfather paradox, the let's kill Hitler paradox, and so on. Science has come up with some solutions for some of these problems. Like the multiverse theory, which argues that every time a person time travels, a parallel universe is created. Or the self-healing hypothesis, which states that whatever a time traveler does in the past will set off another set of events to cause the present to remain the same. As science learns more about space and time, there'll surely be more paradoxes, solutions, and TV shows and Hollywood movies to play it all out. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari.
Well, thanks, uh, Shuka, for giving me so much more to be confused about. I'm John Perry. With me here uh, now, visiting from the future for all I know, is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. And today, we're asking about the space-time continuum. We're joined now by Tim Maudlin. He's a professor of philosophy at New York University. He's author of the very fine book, Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. Tim, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thanks, Ken. I'm very happy to be here. So, Tim, uh, given, you know, all your interest in space-time and all your talents, why did you become a philosopher of space-time rather than a physicist of space-time? Well, when I, when I was an undergraduate, I did a double major or a joint major, actually, in philosophy and physics. And I think I was, in both cases, driven by a just this intellectual desire to get to the very bottom of things in some sense of bottom. And... Uh, Philosophy does that in one way, and physics does it uh, compared to the other sciences in another way. And uh, my talents were more on the physic, on the philosophy side, on the conceptual side, than on the mathematical side. So I ended up actually getting a, a my degree in history and philosophy of science, but then uh, making my bread in a philosophy department. Okay, well. Uh... I'm glad you did. Great addition to philosophy. Now, I, I guess you, like Einstein and all those smart guys, think that space and time are not two things, but rather they're space-time. Does this really make a difference? Um, not to your everyday life, it doesn't. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, but why is it such gonna... a big deal, though? Why is it such a big deal to move from space and, and time to space-time? So... Um, there's just, at a conceptual level, Newton at one point expressing the common belief about time, about an instant of time, said this wonderful thing. He said, a, a moment of time is spread out through all of space. So right. you have the same moment of time in London and in Paris and out in the stars. Um, and that is the way we think of things. And we also think that somehow when we just look, we're seeing the world at the same time. Uh, but that if that's not right, which is what the theory of relativity says. It's a, certainly an interesting observation. It's just telling you that the fundamental structure of things isn't the, what you thought it was, and that's the kind of thing that you know philosophers are always fun, happy to find out that things are not at all the way they seem. So tell me, okay, that's really interesting. But so that means like each place in space has like its own time. I mean, what does that? How does that work? <laughs> so so maybe the right way to think about it is to ask yourself what a clock is. Okay. And uh, <laughs> for Newton, clocks somehow or other measured this absolute time that he believed in that, that was spread out through the whole universe so that clocks everywhere would sort of be ticking together. Um, and in relativity, you should think of a clock more like an odometer. So, you know, the odometer on your car is measuring the length of the path that your car takes from point A to point B. And nothing very puzzling about two cars who start out at A with their odometers set together and end up at B with their odometers showing different mileages because they took different paths. So really what happens in relativity is you say time, the measure of time is the measure of the length of the path that you're traveling through space-time, and different paths have different lengths, and so clocks can get out of sync in that way. Ah, okay. I think I get it. I actually think I get it. But I'm gonna we'll, we'll we'll explore this more after a break. You're listening to Philosophy Talk today. We're thinking about the space-time continuum. In our next segment, 
We'll ask what philosophers can learn from recent physics that will help us understand space-time. Space, time, and space-time, when Philosophy Talk continues. We hope you're enjoying this week's free stream. Philosophy Talk is made possible by listeners like you, and we really need your support. And the more you give, the more you get. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you for donating. Let's get back to the program. Is time just uh, another dimension on a space-time continuum? I mean, you can, if you got a bottle, it's presumably full of space. So is it full of time, too? If you move the bottle, does the space move, or is it full of different space? I'm John Perry. As you can tell, I'm totally confused by space and time. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're thinking about the space-time continuum. Our guest is Tim Maudlin from NYU. He's the author of a lot of great stuff, including the book Philosophy of Physics, Space, and Time. Uh, so, Tim, I want to go back to your odometer analogy, because I want you to help me understand it more. I think I get where you're going. An odometer, though, measures my speed through space over time. I, you know, And you said, but it sounds like you want to make time like an element of my trajectory through, I guess, space-time. It's not just an element of my trajectory through space. So I take a trajectory through time or something like that, and people who start at the same place and end at the same place can take different trajectories or, or something. Can you tell me more about that? I'm not sure if I got right. it right yet. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the again, I was talking about the odometer, which is n tells you nothing about your speed. It just tells right. you about how far you've gone. So uh, if... If you and I are together in San Francisco and uh, we, t we end up together later in New York, but we've been doing different things in the meantime, then if you sort of track us through space and time together, we're following these different paths or what are called world lines through space-time that start together and end together. And the measure, what a clock really measures, a really good clock measures, is the length of those paths. And so the famous twins paradox of relativity is nothing more than noticing that two different paths can have different lengths. Right. When the length of those paths is not a spatial length, it's a space-time length, right? Is that the right way to think about right. it? Right. Or, or really, it's the time length. I mean, it's called the proper time. So okay. that's the name mm. that particular quantity is given. And it's called proper time because it's what a really good clock will be giving you information about. Right. So, so Tim, uh, you know, if, if tomorrow morning Donald Trump tweets, uh, hey, I've been thinking about being on a train and I've decided that there's no space and no time, there's just space time, we'd all just say, oh, God, there he goes again. Now, we took Einstein seriously, but d does he just have thought experiments? Did, right. he, did he perform some really empirical work to show us this was the right and, way to look at it? And let me add to that. I mean, Leibniz gave some a priori philosophical arguments against absolute space and time. Seems like uh, Einstein also rejects absolute space and time, but he surely had more than philosophical arguments and thought experiments, right? Is there something empirical to back this up? Uh, sure. Those are two different questions. Einstein came to the theory by thinking hard about classical electrodynamic theory, about Maxwell's equations, which, ex which express how electric and magnetic fields change, and realized that implicit in those equations 
they were already telling you or indicating a different space-time structure than uh, the classical structure. So that was sort of conceptual, but not through thought experiments so much as through a careful examination of what was really well-verified physics. Um, since then, there's been lots of experiments that show that this fundamental idea of space-time must be exactly on the right track in any case. Um, so you have effects like we were talking about in general relativity where you also, the gravitational field will affect the lengths of these paths and therefore will affect how clocks tick and you can see that. You can actually test that out and see the clocks in front of you uh, run at different rates. So there's lots of good empirical reason to believe this. Right. Um, Go ahead. I, I should say about Leibniz is a different issue and, and uh, if we want to talk about the principle of sufficient reason we can talk about that but that doesn't really come into the into the scientific story very much. <laughs> no I know it doesn't and I actually yeah. think it's a real it's a bogus principle because I mean tell me if you think this is an aside if it were true then quantum mechanics would have to be false wouldn't it uh, well, you've opened another huge can of worms with quantum mechanics. Well, yeah. I, I, if you don't want to go there, that's fine. But Well, I'll, I'll say in literally one sentence, uh, most interpretations are often said to involve fundamental probabilistic or indeterministic uh, events. Some interpretations don't, so it's an open question, really, about whether it violates the principle of sufficient reason or not. Well, 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 but, I, but, but, but we're on the principle of sufficient reason. Let me ask, and that's a philosophical principle. Let me ask you though: Does does philosophy? What does philosophy have to contribute to this, to this debate about I, the nature of space and time and all? People, some people say, Neil deGrasse Tyson says, "Oh, philosophers are it's a dead discipline; it has nothing to do to advance our knowledge." I, I think he finds people like you particularly irritating. But what, what do we have to contribute to stuff, to this kind of debate? So I think what philosophers have to contribute comes more from philosophical training than from philosophical doctrine. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if I'm saying, go read what Kant says about the nature of space and time and bring that into physics. Um, I think that would be a very bad idea. But what philosophy does is it forces you to think down to the very ground fundamental conceptual level and try and get extremely clear and precise about the fundamental concepts. And that really is a, absolutely necessary when you're doing foundational work in physics. And you can just get into a lot of trouble doing physics if you're not careful about the concepts. And that's why Einstein was very sad that physicists more and more didn't study any philosophy. And he, he thought they were being led astray because they couldn't keep track of fundamental uh, Arguments. So, so our roving philosophical reporter went off into the topic of time travel, and that's how a lot of people react to being told about the space-time continuum, that, well, maybe time isn't so different from space and we can travel in time. But is, is that like a result of physics or just an effect of physics on the imagination? Uh, somewhere between the two, I would say. Once you start thinking of space-time the way you do in the general theory of relativity, you realize you can write down mathematical models that have time travel. And there's a question then that arises whether you take those mathematical models to seriously represent physical possibilities. Um, if you do, then you're going to say, gee, time travel is physically possible. It, you can come in and say, no, these are just mathematical models that don't correspond to what could really happen. Let me ask you a question about that, and then I want to turn to a caller. But I want to, what you said, that was an intriguing thing about the mathematical models and the physical reality. You know, sometimes I, I think, 
I'm not a physicist. Sometimes I think all this stuff is full of mathematical tricks, right? And I wonder, I, I, I'm sure it's not like Ptolemy, right? Because there are all these mathematical mm -hmm. tricks you can form on the Ptolemaic universe to make it come out right. But there was no, I learned a long time ago, there's no physical reality behind these mathematical tricks. Is it like that in relativity and quantum? I mean, there's lots of rich mathematics, but does the mathematics really get at physical reality? The relation between the mathematical structure and physical reality is not at all clear. It's very opaque, and there are lots of places where you can raise difficult questions about which part of the mathematics corresponds to physics and which doesn't. Um, I would say the fundamental mathematics of the general theory of relativity is really simple. I mean, you literally just write down a tiny little equation, and you say that's the basis of the theory. So I'm not worried about it being epicycles and epicycles on epicycles there, because out of that simple equation, you get beautiful uh, and well-confirmed predictions. Right. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the space-time continuum. Eric from Alameda is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Eric. What's your comment or question? Uh, so I am also of the opinion that uh, it's mathematical constructs that don't apply to the physical universe. I have wondered for a long time, isn't time just change? If there were no change, there would be no time. It's our way as humans of measuring change. And but we are limited by human perception. We need things to be dimensions. We need things to have physical properties. And time just isn't that. It's it's just a human perception alone. Uh, thanks for the question, Eric. What do you think about that, Dan? Well, there's this idea that you, know, you start with the triviality that clocks measure time, and then sometimes people try to flip that around and say time is what clocks measure, and you need changes, like you have the changes on the hands of a clock, in order to have time. That's not the way time comes into the fundamental equations of physics. It comes in as a, as a fundamental feature of the space-time, and it would be there even if nothing physical or nothing material was changing. Uh, I think it's very unlikely that the time of physics is constructed by humans because it just works so well at microscopic and submicroscopic levels. And what we think of as particularly anthropocentric concepts just shouldn't be expected to, to be so useful in realms so far outside of the realms that humans evolved in. But, but we had a quote in our, uh, uh, in our teaser for this program, a quote from Einstein that said, time is really just a very persistent illusion. If it's an illusion, isn't it a product of human beings? Uh, yeah, that, that quote is repeated over and over <laughs> and over again. Uh, and I think it was, was pointed Thanks out... Thanks to people uh, like us. <laughs> well, uh, no, if physicists do it as well. It was written in a letter that Einstein wrote to the parents of his friend Miko Besso after Besso died and mm. Einstein was just being a nice guy he was being a mensch at that point he wasn't ah. being a physicist oh. uh, trying to make them feel better that you know Mikhail really was wasn't gone in some oh, sense oh I see I see I, 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 I wouldn't take that as a really deep expression. Uh, certainly, there's nothing in relativity that suggests time is an illusion. But but there is. But I do want to ask you about something. I don't know if it's deep or not. Okay, so some people think, and I, and I and I gather as I, as I learn more about this that it's wrong. That live uh, that uh, the relativistic accounts of time and space 
has something in common with Leibniz. But something you said made me think, no, that can't be right. And I think you're right that that's not right. Because you said even if there was nothing in space and time to change, the space-time continuum is this like absolute thing. The time, Leibniz seemed to believe space and time are nothing but structures of relations among things, right? And that the idea of space and time in and of themselves, empty space, it makes no sense. There's no like geometry to the universe independently. But it sounds like you're saying that that's not true for, for in, in a relativistic approach, right? Right. You're you're exactly right. And the the name relativity has not done a lot of help for this particular point. And I think Einstein at one point said it could as well be called the theory of absolute structure <laughs> because there's absolute structure in a relativistic space-time that's there independently of the matter. Uh, in special relativity, there's just a fixed space-time structure. It has a very different geometry than Newton thought there was, but it's still there and would be there even if the universe were entirely empty. So wait, wait, wait. so that's interesting. I was, I was, yeah, help me. I want you to help me and hopefully our listeners get our heads around this more. I mean, the geometry of space seems obvious to me. <laughs> Looking, it's like a three-dimensional Euclidean manifold, right? I draw a triangle, the angle sum to 180 degrees and all that stuff. I don't know how to think about the geometry of space-time because I don't think of, I think of geometry as about space. You know what I mean? Right. So when you were analogically stretching the notion of geometry to talk about geometrical structure of space-time, uh, maybe what will help to get a first-hand, first-pass grasp on it is that what's fundamentally holding space-time together geometrically, as it were, is a light cone structure which associates with every point in space-time a future and a past light cone. So you can see how light is playing uh, a central role, or at least the paths that light takes through space-time when it's empty is playing a central role here. And that light cone structure can't be thought of as simply spatial or simply temporal. In some sense, it's a combination of both, and that's why we're talking about space-time. Uh, so I wasn't wrong when I said to John that light is kind of like the measuring rod of the geometry of space-time. That wasn't, that wasn't like, I made that right, up. That, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, that's, that's right. I mean, but again, you have to think that um, there doesn't have to be actual physical light for there to be a light cone. So the light cone structure is part of the geometrical structure, and then it follows from the laws of physics written in terms of that, that light, physical light will follow uh, particular paths through space-time. Uh, let me just ask you a brief question before we take a break. Uh, what you've told us is surprising about time. There's other things that about time that physicists tell us that are very surprising, like that it has no direction. We'll discuss those in the next segment, but now it's time to take a break. Yeah, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're asking about the space-time continuum with Tim Maudlin from NYU. In our next segment, we'll look at some perplexing mysteries that seem to be posed by the modern physics of space-time. Time travel? Backwards causation? Time as a mere illusion? When Philosophy Talk continues. We hope you're enjoying this free stream. Help us continue to produce thought-provoking episodes like this one by donating to Philosophy Talk. Enjoy the benefits of partnership, including our weekly podcast, and help us stay on the air and online. And now, back to Philosophy Talk.
So if you're my age, you might not have recognized the Time Warp from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But if you're Ken's age, you probably spent your youth going to midnight showings of that wretched movie. I'm John Perry, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. <laughs> Except your intelligence. That's a cult classic, John. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Tim Maudlin from NYU. We're thinking about the space-time continuum. Tim, uh, we've talked about space, we've talked about time, we've talked about space-time, we've talked about <laughs> Einstein was being nice and didn't really think time was an illusion. Uh, there's a lot of other unsolved mysteries. What, what do you think is the biggest problem about what physicists are saying about time for philosophers to try to grapple with? Uh, well, the this illusion talk is something that is starting to drop off Fortunately, uh, good. What is often meant when a physicist says time is an illusion, it, they'll then say, "No, what I mean is time is emergent," and then they'll mean something else beside that. Yeah. But they'll insist, nonetheless, time is real, right? Um, yeah. When when you say illusion, it suggests there is no such thing as time, and right. it's very hard to find uh, physicists. There are few who want to say we, that. But we that's once not had in, Julian in Barber, Julian Barber, in the show. Julian and, believes it. Yeah. yeah, Julian is absolutely on board with that. But his is not uh, a majority position, yeah. to say the least. So you think he's just off base? Uh, he's a brilliant I, guy. I mean, he was a brilliant conversationalist, and he kind of yeah, convinced I, me. <laughs> Didn't I, convince I, me. I, I'm I'm a loyal time believer. Yeah, I I'm very deeply committed to time myself, so uh, I have not been convinced by Julian. So let me ask you about this other thing that some people sometimes talk about: the arrow of time, the direction of time. Space has no direction, right? You can move every no intrinsic direction. You can move every which way in space. I've heard it said that there's a problem about physics and the arrow of time. I don't know if that's right or wrong because I'm an outsider to this. So uh, there are just a lot of different issues that are that are collected together in that statement. Uh, there's one which is: is there an intrinsic direction to time? Does, right. Is is time as a thing have an asymmetry in it, mm -hmm. independently of anything else? That's something that is part of our everyday picture of time. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the most important thing about it that it, we're headed to the future, as it were, and receding from the past, and there's nothing you can do about it. I myself don't think that there's anything much in physics that suggests that's wrong. It would be very hard to understand what the picture of the world is if it was wrong. But is there anything in, in physics that says this is why the arrow of time points this way rather than that? So the question is there are clearly very asymmetric things that happen in time, like our aging or, you know, as they say, <laughs> the fact that all the time you can knock glasses off of tables and see them crash on the floor and you never see the time reverse of that, of the pieces on the floor reassembling themselves and jumping back up on the table. Uh, that's just a physical fact, that you see one thing and not its time reverse. And there's a, a, a question about why that is, uh, which gets us yet into a different realm of physics, which is uh, statistical physics and thermodynamics. Right. And that takes us ultimately back to the Big Bang. So there's a cosmological piece to that puzzle, which is something we haven't talked well, about. Well, let me ask you a na naive question, though. So we're talking about the space-time continuum, as if uh, space and time were four dimensions of one complicated thing. But it sounds like you've just told me that time is really fundamentally different from space because time has an asymmetry that space doesn't have. So that's, those aren't like homogeneous dimensions of one thing. I mean, they're, they're very heterogeneous from one another, right? Absolutely, but that's true even if we leave out the direction of time. So 
if you think of the picture of a cone, when we talk about this light cone structure as being fundamental to space-time, the directions that are inside the cone are very different than the directions that are outside the cone. So if you um, imagine arrows that are all uh, coming out of the cone point, the ones that are outside can be smoothly rotated into each other, so they're all connected to each other. And the ones that are inside are divided into these two sets, the ones that point to the future and the ones that point to the past. Right. So that already tells you there's a real distinction between time direction and space direction in relativity, independently of whether there's a fundamental directedness to time itself. So that just, John wants to jump in here, but that just shows that relativity may challenge our understanding of space and time, but there's a lot about our common sense understanding of space and time, like the asymmetry between space, the dissimilarity between space and time that yes. it actually makes real and, and explains, right? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's no, we always start with this idea that there's this four dimensions that are all like each other the way they would be in a four-dimensional Euclidean space. That's not the picture at all that you end up with, even in relativity. So, so one of the most uh, shocking things about Einstein, I mean, I wasn't there to be shocked, but anyway, uh, is, is this idea that, that simultaneity is observer relative. But it, 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 simultaneity is this idea that, that, that it doesn't make any difference where you are uh, to simultaneity. But you could have observer relative and still have a pretty robust distinction between the future and past, couldn't you? I mean, it just has to be shaped different than, than, a, than a narrow line that extends throughout the university. It has to be kind of a, I don't know what it has to be, but <laughs> there, there are things that are in the future to me that are in the future relative to anyone anywhere and other things that are in the future to me but not in the future to everyone. Isn't that right? Uh, th that's, <laughs> let, me, let me try and walk through that. Um, I would say the easier path to understanding relativity is not to say that in relativity simultaneity is relative, but that in relativity simultaneity just doesn't exist. There's okay. no physical relation of simultaneity at all. Wow. Uh, if we go back to our little light cone picture with this double cone um, centered at a point, the cone that's pointing upward is your future. That, those are all the things that could happen to you in your future, all the places mm -hmm. in space-time you could get to in your future. And the one pointing down is all the things, places you could have been in your past. So there's still a clear distinction between your future and your past. Uh, that division into future and past is unique for every point in space-time. So every point in space-time has a different division than every other point, whereas for Newton... But doesn't yeah, doesn't yeah. Uh, it, it, when once I'm in a place in my light cone at the origin of my light cone, right? There are a bunch of things that are happening at that moment to me. Yes, right, right. That, so that's that, isn't that simultaneity? So for me, sure, to, that it shrinks simultaneity basically down to that point. Whereas for Newton, simultaneity spread out through the entire universe. Um, the the only sense of things being simultaneous with you are 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 where you are and the things if you will right around you at that moment uh and if you get far away there's just no no longer going to be a fact about whether they're simultaneous or not so so i i'm standing here on earth and i look up and there's a something happens on the sun so that's quite a ways away and uh, uh a moment before i saw it it was in my future now take something that I don't just observe, but I cause, right? I'm playing tennis, mm -hmm. and you, you give me a serve, and I manage to return it. 
Now, at the point you served me, that was in the future, and if I didn't return it, my return wouldn't have occurred. Now, can that return be in the past of anything that, <laughs> I mean, doesn't causation have some kind of absoluteness, even if it doesn't take the form of simultaneity? Um, well, let's just go back to your first example. You're looking at the sun, and then you see something happen on the sun. Mm -hmm. Of course, it didn't happen just when you saw it. It happened, as we would say, eight and eight a minutes, half minutes yeah. before you saw it, right? Because the light had to get from the sun to you mm -hmm. to carry the information that it happened. So everything you're seeing is really in the past, and uh, everything you're going to affect is really in your future, right? Is in your future light cone. So there is that kind of restriction on causation, I would say, as well, that all of the things that could have causal effects on you uh, are in your past, and all the things you could influence are in your future. This is the relativistic story. There's a wrinkle to this in quantum mechanics, but we're leaving that aside for the moment. Well, this is tough stuff, Tim. You're boggling my mind. I <laughs> wanted to ask you about if, if two observers moving at different uh, speeds would, and they were mapping the history of the universe, would agree on the history of the universe. I don't know if you can answer that really quickly. Are we all going to agree on what happened in what order, at least? Y you will agree on the history of the universe, there are different ways of, of expressing that history, and no matter how you're moving, you can see all those different ways of expressing it. But uh, <laughs> if you try and express it in terms of Newtonian space and time, there are different ways to do it. But then you're kind of making a mistake, because it's not Newtonian space and well, time. Okay, so on that note, <laughs> on that puzzling note, I, wish we could, I hope we can have you back someday to explore this some more, because we're just scratching the surface. Someday right in the future or someday but, in the past? Yeah, yeah. They, I'm going to thank you for joining us, Tim. It's been a delightful conversation. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Our guest has been Tim Maudlin. He's a professor of philosophy at New York University. He's author of many really, really fine books, but one relevant to this subject is Philosophy of Physics, Space and Time. The conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is Cogito Ergo Blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you can become a partner in that community, and please do by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, if you like thinking about the space and time on the big screen, our film critic Leslie Francis is standing by, and she and Ken are going to take Philosophy Talk to the movies. So, Leslie, speaking of the space-time continuum, there are two, I think, really good movies out there, one from uh, the last year and one from a couple years ago, Arrival and Interstellar. I think they both say interesting philosophical things about our relationship to space and time, about our understanding of space and time, about the nature of space and time. I wonder if you agree with me. I certainly do, particularly with respect to Arrival, partly because... It makes it so clear how conceptions of time can differ and affect how it is that one actually sees reality. The story is these aliens arrive on planet Earth. There's like 
12 different clusters of them who land in 12 different places and the military in different places are trying to communicate with these aliens and we see the the american effort uh, led by a linguist Amy Adams, who plays the character Louise Banks, and she's a great linguist, and she's trying to figure out, understand this alien language, because these aliens are clearly trying to communicate something. We need to talk to the other sites. We need to help them with what they've gotten from the other heptapods. In case you don't remember, we're blacked out. China just threatened to destroy their shell. We're on our own. But this says that all of the pieces fit together. And I'm telling you that no one else cares. I don't know if you've ever read a book that came out, maybe... 15, 20 years ago, called Einstein's Dream, in which the same event happens in 48 different conceptions of time. So time is circular, time as not continuous, and arrival in a very direct way confronts us with how we structure reality. You know, I was doing some, some reading um, about this idea that if you immerse yourself into a foreign language that you can actually rewire your brain. Yeah, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Mm. The theory that, uh, it's, it's the theory that uh, the language you speak determines how you think and... Yeah, it affects how you see everything. It was, uh, I'm curious, are you dreaming? in their language. One of the questions in the movie, in a way, is if you knew what were going to happen and it wasn't a particularly happy ending, would you go ahead and act anyway? And Louise Banks would. She takes that risk. At great personal cost. At great personal cost. Although, in the background, also to think about is whether she really is taking that risk. Whether she took that risk, right? right whether she's right. taking that risk. Or, because that's one of the things about the movie. It seems to be telling you a story that's moving forward in time. And because we're in the present moving toward the future, we're experiencing the movie as if it's moving from past to future with kind of hints from the future being dropped in. But once you see what the movie's about, it's equally plausible that what's being dropped in aren't anticipations of the future, but memories of the past. Or it's kind of both ways. The weapon is their language. They gave it all to us. Do you understand what that means? So we can learn heptapod if we survive. If you learn it, when you really learn it, you begin to perceive time the way that they do. So, so you can see what's to come. But time, it, it isn't the same for them. It's non-linear. Maybe all the movie is telling us is that the future is determined and we don't really have a choice. Right. But that whole way of understanding the movie is rooted in the idea that causation and change move from past to future. But that's exactly what Ted Chang in the short story and the movie at its best challenges. I think interstellar time is also the key and that the underlying thought there is that the space-time continuum the four-dimensional space-time continuum is just part of reality and if we could step outside of that 
We could influence that reality. We could move around in the space-time continuum in new and amazing ways. They constructed this three-dimensional space inside their five-dimensional reality to allow you to understand it. Well, it ain't working. Yes, it is. You've seen that time is represented here as a physical dimension. You have worked out that you can exert a force across space-time. Gravity. To send a message. Affirmative. Gravity can cross the dimensions, including time. Apparently. That's the fascinating part of Interstellar and what it does brilliantly. But when it attempts to actually visually capture what it would be to move out of four dimensions, it just doesn't work very well. I think it's trying really hard to do something to represent that higher dimensionality is important. Because if the space-time continuum is a four-dimensional manifold embedded in a higher dimensionality, what looks like separate things separated in time, separated by space, could really be the same thing. That's what they're trying to do with that room. It's like a library. It's infinitely branching. It can go here and there and here and there. All of this is one little girl's bedroom every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. To me, that captured what it was to be in a room with a lot of mirrors. Yeah. Not what it was to move into another dimension. I guess you're right, but it's really hard <laughs> to move into a new dimension and hard to represent. But you know, it was an audaciously ambitious artistic attempt. You've got to admit that. Oh, I certainly admit that. And just like Arrival, it challenges us to re-understand how we standardly think of time. So, Leslie, you and I agree that both Arrival and Interstellar are fine vehicles for philosophical mm, thinking about the space-time continuum. Absolutely. Everybody ready to say goodbye to our solar system? To our galaxy. Here we go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of KALW, local public radio San Francisco, and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2017. Our executive producers are David Demarest and Matt Martin. Our senior producer is Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Cindy Prince-Baum is our director of marketing. Thanks also to Merle Kessler, Audrey Dilling, and Colin Peden. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and from the partners at our online community of thinkers. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders, not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you, too, can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Forward into the past.
Hey, you made it to the end of the show. Not everybody does. That means you must really like us. So help us. How can you help us? Go to philosophytalk.org, look for the I Will Help button, click it, and get ready to help. Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. And thank you so much for donating.